This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. A lot to do today. Monday was the 72nd anniversary of D Day. So we uh, want to share a story. I mean, gosh, there's a infinite number of stories from that day, but I want to share one that I've never heard before until just the other day. So we'll do that coming up today. Um, a major company decided to move from California to Texas. This was a company that was founded in California 60 years ago. And they finally said, I, I, we can't take it anymore. <laughs> We're out of here. Uh, so we'll tell you that. And also a major decision from the ninth circuit court of appeals about the second amendment. Now, Ninth Circuit's in California. It's actually a San Diego case. It's out of the county of San Diego. So we'll give you some insider information about this. And this does affect you. So you're thinking, well, I'm not in the Ninth Circuit area or I'm not in California. This case will go to the Supreme Court and will have major implications in our Second Amendment rights. So we'll tell you all the backstory to this. Actually, the case is called Peruta versus County of San Diego, uh, Edward Peruta. And he uh, is a listener of our my local show, right? So we're... Pretty close to, to what's happening here in the backstory. So we'll tell you all about that coming up. This is where I want to start, though. And I really don't even want to. <laughs> just before I'm about to do it, I'm like, maybe we shouldn't even do this. Because uh, it's kind of past. But I feel like it might come up again. And I've made this argument a bunch of times to a bunch of people. And it never works. And... I'm not quite sure why. And and I wrote something on Facebook about it earlier in the week and 95% of the comments were against me. So I said, Oh geez, like maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe. And what I've decided is I'm not wrong. It's just that we're talking different languages and we're talking about different things. So there's a miscommunication and I think we're all right. So so people have been yelling at me about it. They're right. and, And I'm right. We're just talking about different things. That makes sense. So let me play. So I want to, so let me do that. I want, I want to take as inquisitive of a tone and as humble of approach as, to pos- as possible because I might be wrong, but I, I think we're just talking about different things. So I want to make sure we're, we're on the same page. Um, can we start off with clip eight to one, por favor? This is Morning Joe the other day. Can I just do a poll? Paul Ryan endorsed him. Can I just do a poll? Nicole, is that racism? Yes. Okay. It's Joe, completely racist. Is that racism? It's completely racist. Here oh, you have a guy yeah, that is yeah. from Indiana. Yeah. From Indiana. I think his family, if I'm not mistaken, had been in the country of America longer than Trump's grandmother. Reverend now is that racism? Oh, it's absolutely unequivocally okay, racist. <laughs> okay. For, first of all. As someone told me the other day, Al Sharpton thinks bathrooms are racist because the toilet paper's white. 
Okay, right? Like Al Sharpton, if you told him the sky is blue, he'd be like, oh, unequivocally, that's racist of you, right? So that he's not, he's not the best person to ask on this. Obviously, this is about Trump and uh, Trump University and the court case, which is also being held right here in San Diego, um, and about the judge being a Mexican and all that stuff. Okay, so my comments here are in reaction. It's it's a counter reaction to people's reaction. <laughs> okay. So foundational truth number one. These are just things that I want to make sure we can agree on moving forward. Because if not, then nothing, if we can't agree on this, then nothing we say moving forward is worth it. Okay. Foundational truth number one. A judge can be biased. Now, hold on, because I can already tell some people are getting mad at me. I'm not even talking about Trump right now. Don't forget. I'm not put Trump away. A judge can be biased and they can be biased for a lot of reasons. Human beings are biased. We have perspectives. We have life experiences that change how we think. Putting a black robe on doesn't automatically change that. Now, judges are generally better than the average person at putting biases aside but that's no guarantee and they can't do it every time that's why judges recuse themselves in different cases we'll get to that in a second so that's foundational truth number one a judge can be biased and i say that because i'm hearing a lot of people say whoa whoa to suggest a judge is biased you are horrible person it's like whoa (laughs) what like of course a judge can be biased is he, now, is this judge biased? Th- that's a different conversation. I just want to have the, the, again, the foundational point that a judge can be biased. That is possible. Okay, foundational truth number two. Racism and racist is different than racial. Now, you may be rolling your eyes and saying, well, hold on, Slater. That sounds like you're just arguing over semantics. No, these are very different. Trump has been making a lot of comments based on race. These are racial. It's very different than being racist. This is very, very important. And I'll explain why in a little bit. But the definition of racism, we got to get this right. Racism is a belief in the inherent genetic superiority of one race over another. Does Donald Trump believe that he is inherently and genetically superior to all Mexicans? First of all, Mexican isn't a race, it's a nationality. It's like, you're French. Like, French isn't a race. Canadian isn't a race. Mexico's a country, so it's a nationality. But we're putting that aside. Does Donald Trump believe he is genetically superior to this judge because this judge has Mexican heritage? I don't, I don't think so. Donald Trump didn't say, this judge is Mexican, therefore he has a tiny stupid brain because all Mexicans are inferior to white people. Like that would be racist thinking that all Mexicans I think what he was saying is this one judge might be biased because of his Mexican heritage and things that I've said about. And have, listen, hasn't this whole a lot of people on the left and right have been saying, "Whoa, Donald Trump, you can't talk about the wall and all this stuff because Mexicans are going to hate you." And then here's Donald Trump saying, hey, you know, this one Mexican guy might hate me and might be biased. And people are like, whoa, that's outrageous. Like, well, hold on. <laughs> You've been telling us that that's exactly what would happen. And this, Donald Trump is saying, oh, that, that might be the case here. And people are saying that's the craziest thing they've ever heard in their entire lives. And no way can that be. Hmm. 
So anyway, back on track. I don't think Donald Trump said this guy can't be a judge ever because he's Mexican and judge and Mexicans make bad judges because they're all stupid and have tiny brains. That, that, that wasn't it. It's this guy has a certain her- Mexican heritage. I'm running for president and I want to build a wall. And I talk a lot about this country and he may therefore have a bias against me because now that's, that's not the craziest thing in the world, right? <laughs> Again, that's why I want to say my, my reaction here is kind of a counter reaction to everyone saying that this is the craziest, most, out, most outrageous thing they've ever heard in their lives. I'm like, what? Well, it might not be right, but it's not the craziest thing ever. Okay, now let me, let me make this. This is important. I should have started off with this. I have no proof at all that this judge is a bad person or a biased person or anything other than an understanding judge in every single way. I'm not reacting to Trump's accusation as much as people's response to Trump back, Trump's accusation. Just out, how dare he? He's, he's so racist. What Trump said is racist. People losing their minds over this. And I just don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. I'm not saying it's true here. I don't know enough about this judge in this case. And this, I don't know that. But, but to say that, like, oh, no way. Here, Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor. 2001. Sonia Sotomayor. She's from Puerto Rico. Her family's from Puerto Rico. Whether born from experience or inherent physiological or cultural differences, our gender and national origins may and will make a difference in our judging. Personal experiences affect the facts that judges choose to see. I simply do not know exactly what that difference will be in my judging, but I accept that there will be some based on my gender and my Latina heritage. So she's saying, and this is 2001, she's a Supreme Court justice now. She's saying she's biased. She has perspectives. Now she's saying, well, I have the right kind of bias and an appropriate amount of bias or whatever. But there's a bias. Judges know that they shouldn't have a bias. Now, sometimes they do. Sometimes it's impossible not to have a bias because, again, we're human beings. So judges recuse themselves. I talked to a woman the other day. She was in a court case um, against a, a, a company or a Catholic organization. And the judge that was given the case was Catholic. So he knew he was biased and he recused himself. So it, it happens. <laughs> So I don't know. This fight is not even, it's not a fight. I'm not arguing. I'm just, it just seems that people lost their minds and I don't, I didn't quite understand why. So I don't know. Slater radio on Twitter, Slater radio on Twitter, S L A T E R radio. Um, Again, this is kind of in the past now, but it'll pop up again because they're going to say over and over and again, again, that Trump is racist. He's racist. He's racist. He's racist. I, I just don't see how, we can live in a society, a culture that says you must be a proud Mexican or a proud Puerto Rican in the case of Sonia Sotomayor, right? Embrace your heritage, embrace your ancestry. And then on the other hand, when you put a black robe on, oh, like, no, 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 no. That doesn't, has nothing to do with your identity or what you look at or how you judge or (laughs) I don't know. You can't have both those at the same time. I don't think. So I'm going to put that to bed there. I just wanted to get that stuff off my chest, make sure we're kind of on the same page with some things and it'll pop up again. Even though Trump said, I'm not talking about it anymore. And the media said, we'll move on. It will come back around and whatever. 
1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. Mike Slater Hi Steve, so here's what we got going on here Oh, I'm sorry. Why, Slater Crusaders? I apologize. Um, got to step away from the mic for a minute. I missed the whole thing. Uh, here's a question I was uh, asked the other day. Will Bernie supporters, any of them, eventually support Trump? No, certainly not all of them, uh, but 10%. Can, can you get 5 or 10% of Bernie supporters? So I don't have the numbers in front of me. I don't even know if we can find these numbers, to be honest. But let's go back to 2008. So Hillary Clinton was running against Barack Obama, right? Those two were running. Barack Obama won. He got first place. Hillary Clinton got second. Did 10% of Hillary supporters in 2008 go to John McCain? Right? I mean, like, did, did 10% of the person who got second place in one party, did 10% of those go and vote for the nominate, nominee of the other party? Like, I, I can't imagine that ever happened. I have to imagine most, if all of them, coalesce behind um, the party's candidate. But what if, what if 10% of Bernie supporters vote for Trump? That'd be a game changer. Forget about the black vote or the Hispanic vote, the Bernie vote Trump needs to go after. But I'm thinking, okay, how is this possible? How, how could this work? So, so what we have here is a, uh, it's called a bootlegger and a Baptist situation bootlegger and Baptist. So I'll explain this real quick and then we'll talk about how Trump can do this. So define some terms here. A bootlegger is someone who sold alcohol during prohibition when it was illegal. Bootlegger. And a Baptist, like talking about the religion, right? Popular religious denomination, particularly in the South. So during prohibition, both of these groups of people wanted alcohol banned. Both of them. So the bootlegger and Baptist phenomenon is when you have two completely different groups, right? So in this case, you have religious people over here, and then you have criminals over here, the bootleggers. They have nothing in common, but they each want the same law. In this case, they want alcohol to be banned, and they want it for different reasons. Sure, the, ba- the, you know, the Baptist wants to, to, to preserve the family and all the rest, and the bootlegger wants alcohol to remain on the black market so they can make a lot of money. So you have these two very different people who, for very different reasons— Vote the same on one issue. Bootlegger, Baptist. 
came across another example the other day real quick. So, you know, the, the FDA like a month or so ago said they're going to regulate e-cigarettes, uh, the same as cigarettes for no good reason at all. But there's two groups that really want to ban e-cigarettes. On one side, you have cigarette companies. They don't want the competition to their cigarettes. So they want to ban e-cigarettes. Then you got the drug companies and they also support the ban because they have a lot of medications that can help you stop smoking. So they want people to keep smoking so that they can sell their medications. So you have two very different groups of people. You have the tobacco companies and the drug companies who both want the same law banning cigarettes or banning e-cigs. Pretty funny, right? Different groups. Anyway, so I, I thought of this because you got a Bernie Sanders supporter and a Donald Trump supporter. Like, what? Like, like how, how could there possibly be any overlap in that Venn diagram? So how can it work? How can 10% of Bernie supporters vote for Trump? Yeah, your Bernie supporters are pretty angry. You know, they may say never Hillary. But is that enough for them to go then vote for a rich white New York Republican? Like that, that seems like a stretch. And you know how hardcore the Bernie fans are. You're the AP, uh, the AP's, who was it? The vice president for global security or something. He told the AP reporters to be careful. Like they sent a memo to all the AP people because the AP was the news out news outlet that the day before the California primary on Monday night, they said that Hillary Clinton won the nomination to try to get Bernie supporters and everyone else to think, oh, it's over. I guess I'm not going to vote on Tuesday. Right? So, so they called it early and the Bernie supporters are super ticked off at him. And there's a New York Times reporter who said on Twitter that she's not answering her call her phone anymore because Bernie supporters keep calling her and, and threatening to kill her. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not answering my phone anymore. New York Times reporter, right? So Bernie supporters are rabid. And you know, we've talked all, a bunch before about how Cleveland, the Republican National Convention, was supposed to be the chaotic riot. Who knows if it will be or not, but Philadelphia is what they're really concerned about. Now that's the Democratic convention the week after. The Bernie supporters are going to go loco. They're not going to accept Hillary. So how can Trump get just 10%? Not all of them. That's not even 50%. 20% is not even going to happen, but 5 10% maybe. Here's the one word that Trump's got to keep doing over and over again. Rigged. Say that word over and over again. That message, the system is rigged. That message resonates with a lot of people, and here's why it works. People can interpret it however they want. So the system is rigged. That could mean the election process, superdelegates, whatever. It could mean the economy. The system is written. What system? That's like, what does he doesn't say just as the system is written. It could be the economy. It could be bureaucrats in DC. It could be cronyists, big business. The system is rigged as an excuse that people make when they make their own bad life decisions, right? They say, well, I didn't make a wrong decision. The system is rigged, right? It's so vague. And the best arguments to make in a presidential campaign, unfortunately, are incredibly vague ones where you can put your, you can project whatever you want on it. Hope and change. What kind of change? I don't know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just change. Whatever change you want. What, what, from what? Like, from what to what? Eh, whatever, just hope and change. Make America great again. That's undefinable. The system is rigged. What system? How is it rigged? Who rigged it? What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> and what do you want to do with it instead? It, it's, it's undefined. 
everyone just projects what they're upset about on it. So that way it appeals to everyone. Think of the alternative. If Donald Trump came out and said the income tax should be 25%, well, that upsets everyone. It upsets everyone who thinks it should be higher. It upsets everyone who thinks it should be lower. The only people who are happy are the people who think it should be 25%, but that's a very small percentage of people. So what good is specifics? But if you say the system is rigged, people can interpret that any way they want. That's why it's smart. And that's why you're going to hear that's, that's going to be the number one talking point from Donald Trump moving forward. The system is rigged and it, do, it doesn't attack Hillary. Even really it's, it, you don't have to bring her into it. Just the system is rigged. If Trump can do more of that, I think he'll uh, get five to 10% of Bernie supporters. That's a game changer. Slater radio on Twitter. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. I want to talk more about hey Slater Cassettes. How are you? Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Uh, I want to talk more about the system being rigged in a little bit. Um, but I wanted to try to echo some thoughts I heard. We, we talked to a guest on my local show the other day about Hispanics and the, the term Hispanic and how it's meaningless, really. And this is important. I want to I'll bring the rigged in with this coming up. Um the word Hispanic, they say, the media says that 38% of Americans are Hispanic. Right? And because we talk about the demographics, like, oh, the, we got the Hispanic vote. We got to worry about the Hispanic vote. And how are we going to appeal to Hispanics? Hispanics are going to take over the country, blah, 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 blah. 38% of Americans are Hispanic, they say. But if you look at the census data on that, half of those people, half of those people self identify as white. And if you look at the, the, how they do this, it's, you can be a white Hispanic or a non-white Hispanic. So, like, so what is Hispanic? So, okay, example, Vincente Fox, former president of Mexico. I remember him and Trump got in a little spat a couple weeks ago. Vincente Fox, his family is from Germany. The name Fox is German for like Fuse or Fuchs or Fuchs or something like that. So the president of Mexico is white. Former president, think about that. The former president of Mexico is a white guy. Huh? So it's all, it's very confusing. The takeaway is, this, this is what matters about Then You can do some more research on that. It's, it's super confusing. This is the takeaway. The only reason that Hispanics are made out to be something different is so that they can be separated and turned into a voting block. Hispanic, it, it really, I guess it's any, it's basically any Spanish-speaking country, right? It, Hispanic, the word comes from España, which means Spain. So any Spanish-speaking country is Hispanic, but someone who lives in the Dominican Republic is Hispanic, and so is someone who lives in Chile, right? But 
they have nothing in common other than that. Right? <laughs> They're two totally different people, cultures, food, like everything. I, like, so why do we lump them together with this term Hispanic? It's really a meaningless term. And again, only created to put people in a certain voting block. So Hispanics can be separated and then turned into a groupthink mentality, told how to act, who to vote for, how to think. If you really think about it, it is so weird to, to like appeal to Hispanics. It is such a broad group of people. It doesn't make any sense. Hispanics are as diverse as white people. They can come from Spain or Argentina or Cuba, very different places. That's as diverse as white people. But notice, no one talks about German Americans. Do you ever hear, have you ever heard a single candidate talk about appealing to the German American vote? The largest ethnic group in America is German Americans. 46 million German Americans, myself included. No one talks about how Trump or Hillary are going to appeal to the German vote or even what the German issues are. So then why do we talk about the Hispanic issues? Why are they, why are they, that group expected to vote a certain way or believe certain things? So I did some research on German Americans. It turns out, first of all, when we first became a country, they were trying to figure out what language was going to be our official language. Some people wanted, a lot of people wanted English, obviously. Some people wanted uh, French. Some people wanted Hebrew. But the second closest, we almost were a German-speaking country because there were so many German immigrants here. Think about that. We were almost a German-speaking country. It was actually Noah Webster, Webster Dictionary, who argued and and fought for English. A hundred years ago, so 1900, New York City had the third largest German population in the world behind Berlin and Vienna. And again, Germans are the largest ethnic group in America today. German, I mean, there's towns across the country that that used to be exclusively German. Entire industries. Uh, Beer, for instance. Pabst, Bush, Miller. These are all German immigrants. One reason why America didn't enter World War I for so long was because so many Germans here didn't want to go to war against Germany. And there were a lot of uh, uh, Germans who were accused of being spies during World War I in particular. Do you know 30 Germans were killed during World War I by anti-German mobs? Here in America, the music, Beethoven, Brahms, it was attacked. You, you couldn't listen to that anymore because it was German music. German books were banned. This wasn't that long ago. But think about it. Today, no one talks about the German vote. And I argue that that's because Back then, German Americans never wanted to be a protected class. And therefore, the government never categorized Germans as something different to be separated. The goal wasn't to be a different, distinct thing. It was to try and become more American. You know, back in the day, you didn't want to separate yourself from being white or being American. It's a better way of putting it. You didn't want to separate. You didn't want to discriminate. You wanted to discriminate yourself. You wanted to integrate. You didn't want to be known as something different. You were American. But today it's all about being different. And part of it's our narcissistic culture and some other things. But 
It's all about your skin color. It's all about what language you speak. It's all about being black or Hispanic or, and those are the big, you know, two main groups that people talk about, but gosh, we got to move past that. And I think the very first step to improve the economic conditions of black people and Hispanic people in particular, the very first step is stop putting people in groups and treating them differently. You know, in the past, when, when we would put people in groups, we'd treat them worse. That was the point. You put someone in a group so that you can treat them worse than you treat everyone else. But today we put people in groups and the government says they're going to treat that group better, but they still don't. You know, 50 years ago, the black teenage unemployment rate was under 10%. Black teenage unemployment rate, under 10%. Now it's 50%. Why? Because they've been put in a distinct group and helped by, by the government. There's uh, some videos out there of Thomas Sowell doing an interview in uh, 1984 talking about different groups in America. And he said, in particular, oh, he wrote a book back that year, maybe called Race Race in America, Race and Politics. I'll look it up in a second. And he talked about all different ethnic groups in America. And he said the Jews and the Chinese in particular stayed away from politics. And those two groups in America, the Jews and the Chinese, have improved their lot in America more than any other group precisely because they stayed away from politics. You know, today no one ever talks about quotas or equal representation for Asians in America or for Jews in America. These two groups did well because they stayed away from politics. They improved their skills and their education first and foremost. So Thomas Sowell's argument is that black and Hispanic people need to stop thinking that their success comes from political power. It won't. Yes, political power was necessary to stop Jim Crow and to bring in civil rights, but that's over. You're not going to get anything now from political power. It's now time to get back on track and focus on family and education. That will not come through government power. It's family and education, not a government thing. Focus on those first. Look at other groups in America that are doing well that we don't distinguish anymore. anymore. Irish, right? We don't, we don't talk about the Irish anymore, right? I mean, the Irish are horribly discriminated against. You see the, all these, you saw pictures of these signs that said Irish need not apply and all the rest. But the Irish didn't need to have specific laws written about them. There were no Dream Act laws about the Irish. We don't even think about it anymore. Irish, Germans, Eastern Europeans, Jews, Chinese, Japanese, no special laws, no special Nothing, <laughs> nothing. They just focused on the, their family and their education. And now we don't even I don't think about it. Like who, who, who thinks about the Irish American vote or the Chinese vote in America? Who, who thinks that? Oh, what, what, are the, what are Japanese Americans really looking for out of a candidate this election? Like, Do you know the wealthiest ethnic group in America? The wealthiest ethnic group. Top three. What do you think? What do you think number one is? Number one, Indian, like the country. Two, Taiwan, Taiwanese. And three, Filipino. Are there any special laws for these groups? Any special privileges? How about this? Is there any political representation 
for these groups at all. Yeah, you may have a Filipino congressman. I don't even know if there is, but maybe there's a candidate on a city council or something from one of these ethnic groups, but that's it. Do you know of any Indian politicians? Indians, and maybe I should define wealthiest ethnic group. Indians, and I don't have it in front of me. I can look it up. Um, Highest average income of any ethnic group, Indians. And it's not even close. Do they have special, do they have politicians who have passed Indian what? I don't even, like, no. Bobby Jindal's the one Indian politician I can think of. But there's no effort. There hasn't been an effort to, oh, we got to get a lot of Indian Americans in political power. Oh, we need more uh, Taiwanese people to, to represent Congress and really help other Taiwanese people. No, none of that. Just strengthening their family and getting an education. That's it. I don't know, fascinating. I never, I never really thought about it uh, until recently. The word Hispanic is meaningless. It's really meaningless. It just means you, you have a heritage where people spoke Spanish. Like, so? What? <laughs> who cares? It's way too broad of a term to have any meaning. But that's all we're supposed to think about. And people who are Hispanic, you're supposed to think it's the same as every other Hispanic. And you're supposed to vote for these politicians because they're there to help you. No, no, no. It's never how that works. No, something to think about. one 933 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, I, I gotta, I just gotta end on this one. I only got a minute or so here. We gotta do some talk about D Day coming up next. Uh, I want to tell you a fun story about not fun story, interesting story about that. Um, but this is just one of the crazy stories of the week. So the State Department or, or someone issued a uh, Freedom of Information Act request for the State Department to release Hillary Clinton's emails to the public. It's public record. How long do you think the State Department said that would take? How long would it take to release all of Hillary Clinton's public emails? So in um, California or San Diego, I I think when you issue a Freedom of Information Act request, I think they have 30 days, maybe two weeks, 30 days in order to release whatever information you want. Now, they drag their feet as much as possible, and they're really annoying about it, but that's the law at least. So 30 days. So how long do you think it will take the State Department to release Hillary Clinton's emails? There's 450,000 pages of records. And I imagine that's one email per page. I don't really know how that works. But 450,000 pages. How long do you think that will take? So I've been asking people. I've been, I polled people the other day. And uh, someone said, two months. And I said, no, 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 no. I asked someone else. They said, all right, fine. Obviously, it's a lot. Um, a year and a half? That'd be outrageous if it was a year and a half. 75 years. The State Department said, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll, 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 we'll release um, Hillary Clinton's records. No problem. Um, 
it's it's just going to take us 75 years. <laughs> what? They said it's like 500 pages a month or something, and they calculated it out to be 75 years. And then people said, well, hold on, that can't be right. And the State Department came back the next day and said, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what we meant, 75 years. That is outrageous. Do you know how long it took to, to build the Empire State Building? 13 months. Versailles took 17 years. Hillary Clinton's emails, 75 years. And people are fine with it, no big deal. <laughs> wow. I don't, like, I don't even know. What the heck? How could, how could people be fine with that? You know, I don't Maybe we'll get to this a little later. Uh, but Glenn Reynolds says the next Republican needs to be a, or the, the next president needs to be a white male Republican. And when I first read that, I was like, wow, geez, that's a racist thing to say. He's going to get some heat. And what he really meant is that's the person the media hates the most. And that's what it's going to take to get the media to learn how to do their job again. A white male Republican, because I guarantee you, if the media requested information about a white male Republican and they came back and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get it to you. It's going to take us 75 years, 75 years. <laughs> I mean, like, that's, they, they, there's no way they would let that fly. But here, yeah, okay, sure, 75 years. That, that's, that seems fine. <laughs> what? All right, coming up in the uh, next hour here, we're going to talk about um, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, often called the Ninth Circus, and they're ruling on the Second Amendment. Not good, but it's going to the Supreme Court. We'll tell you all about it next. Mike Slater Show, Blaze Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Um, let's talk about some Second Amendment stuff here. Big case. I don't know, and maybe you can share with me on Twitter, Slater Radio. I don't know if this made national news or not. This is a big story in California. Obviously a big story in San Diego. I'll tell you why in a second. Um, but I don't know if this made national news. Obviously there's a lot going on. I could see how this could slip through the cracks. So if you've heard this story, if you could send me a tweet or either way, like I said, I've never heard this. I didn't hear this at all this week. Or yeah, I definitely heard this. I, I really don't even know if this made national news at all. So here's the story. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The most overturned court in America. Something like 92% of their court cases are overturned. Ruled that you do not, here I'll quote, I'll quote from them. So you don't think I'm making this up. We hold that the Second Amendment does not preserve or protect a right of a member of the general public to carry concealed firearms in public. So this is about getting a concealed carry permit. Now, in the state of California, it is illegal to open carry. You cannot just put a gun on your hip, outside your pants or your shirt, jacket, so it's seen. That is illegal. You cannot open carry in California. Now, what is allowed is conceal carry. But in order to get a conceal carry permit, 
you have to get the permit from the county sheriff. Now, let me read here from the ruling. Um, So here it is. State law says that a sheriff of a county may issue a concealed carry license to a person upon proof of all of the following. And there's four criteria. First, the applicant must have good moral character. I have no idea what that means. I don't know what the legal definition of that is. I don't know if like they'll deny you because you're rude. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that exactly means. But second, good cause exists for issuance of the license. You have to be a resident of the county. And fourth, uh, you have to complete a, a gun training course. Okay. So that's what it takes. Now, what's really at dispute here is the second qualification. Good cause exists in order to get a concealed carry permit. You have to have good cause. Now, good cause in my world is I'm an American and I want one. That's a good enough cause for me. I want one. But our sheriff in San Diego County, this case is called Peruta versus County of San Diego. Our sheriff says, no, that's not a good enough cause. You need to have a better cause than you want one. Now, what does that end up being? It ends up being you've already been a victim of violence. So once you're a victim or if if you're under imminent threat, then you can get a concealed carry permit. But other than that, that's not a good enough cause. You can't get one. So in the end, you can't open carry in California. That's illegal. And our sheriff is making it nearly impossible to conceal carry. So the argument goes that we don't have the right to bear arms in California. Now, the Heller decision in D.C., which you may be familiar with, that's about owning a gun inside of your house. This is a question about what you are allowed to do when it comes to having a gun outside of your house. In California, it's almost impossible to be allowed to carry a weapon outside of the house. It's illegal for everyone, open carry. And again, concealed carry, carry, it's up to the discretion of the sheriff. But when sheriffs don't issue them to anyone, then what the heck? Let's give you an example. San Diego County has 3, 3.5 million people. The state of Connecticut has 3 point, let me confirm, 3.5 million people. So it's about the same population. San Diego County and the state of Connecticut are about the same population, also about the same size land-wise. San Diego County is 4,500 4, square miles. Connecticut's 5,500 square miles. So about the same size population-wise and, and uh, land mass. Connecticut has 238,000 concealed carry permits. 238,000. San Diego County, 1,000. 1,200 to be specific. So, so we, have, we have 1%, less than 1% the number of concealed carry permits as Connecticut. And I'm talking Connecticut. I'm not saying like Oklahoma. Like this is Connecticut. <laughs> we have 1% the number of Connecticut. And for the real side point, is Connecticut like the wild, wild west? Are there just concealed carry permit holders just uncontrollably murdering people all the time in Connecticut or accidental uh, firing of their, their guns all over the place? No, you don't hear about that at all. It doesn't happen. So that excuse to not let law-abiding people in San Diego County or anywhere in California doesn't hold because look at Connecticut. They're doing just fine. 
So just a little, that's how difficult it is in San Diego County to get a concealed carry permit. And bigger picture though, this is not how rights work in America. You don't seek permission for them. The government doesn't hand them out to the deserving few. We are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Endowed by God, the government just recognizes those rights. How it should work? There's a foundation. The assumed starting point is everyone is allowed to get a concealed carry permit. That's how it should be. Everyone's allowed And then the onus is on the government to tell you why you can't. So they'll make the argument that you can't have a concealed carry permit because say you're a felon or you're 12 years old, right? You're not of age or whatever. Whatever the argument is, the onus is on them to make the argument why you shouldn't be allowed to. But instead, what we have in America today, or at least in California, is the assumption is no one is allowed to have a concealed carry permit. And I have to make the argument to them as to why I should be allowed. That's backwards. They flipped it. Imagine if every other right was that way. Let's say no one has the right to freedom of speech. No one has a right to it. But you can go and you can make your case to the government as to why you should be allowed. And maybe, maybe they'll tell you and agree with you that you have good cause. Or maybe they'll say, no, you don't have good enough cause to speak. Or even freedom to assemble in in large groups, you need a permit. That's okay. But you don't have to make your case as to the importance of the gathering, right? When you go and get a permit, you don't have to say, well, this is, this is what it's about. And, um, you know, we, we, we want a permit and, and, and the bureaucrat can't say, oh, no, 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 it's not. That's not a good enough cause. Sorry. Permit denied. <laughs> like, well, we're going to have a permit about let, let's, even like, let's go crazy left wing group. Um, we're going to have a, a gathering in the park. Uh, we're going to have about a hundred people there and it's going to be about um, acknowledging the influence of, of, um, of, uh, <laughs> of UFOs on global warming and we're gonna we're we're gonna bring awareness to ufo carbon emissions and how that's affecting wildlife and species and plants and the county or the city says okay (laughs) there's your there's no one in the county that can say ah that's a dumb reason to meet so now permit that's not how that works the assumption is you are allowed but not with the second amendment right there, there, the assumption is you are not allowed and you have to beg and plead your case as to why you are, or really you have to be a victim. You are, have to already be a victim. That's amazing. So I've taught, Oh, by the way, the, the case, I'm sorry, I forgot this. So the case is called Peruta versus County of San Diego, where I live. Uh, Bill Gore is the sheriff. He's up for reelection in two years. We're going to get him out of there. Don't worry. Uh, he's former FBI. He's been FBI for 33 years before he became our sheriff. He may just retire. He's going to be 71 in two years. So maybe he's just out of here. But uh, the guy, Edward Peruta, is the guy who sued. He is a freelance videographer. So he lives in an RV. 
He says sometimes he parks it in places outside of cell area, cell coverage area. And when he does a lot of like um, homicides and stuff like that. So if there, if he hears something over the police radio, he'll go to the scene of the crime. And sometimes he's there before the police get there. And then he says, you know, I'll, I'll get some video and I need to upload it real quick. So I'll be in my car and I'm in a dark place at night, strange place, maybe outside a cell phone area and I'm uploading information or whatever. And it's dangerous. And I would like a gun to protect myself. Not good enough cause. He was denied. He was denied because it wasn't good enough. That's crazy. That's not how that works. So I talked to Ed the other day. I said, Ed, how are you feeling? He said, you know what? Not bad. Because now this case is going to go to the Supreme Court. Now, I liked his optimism, but as we've said many times before, ever since Obamacare, if your argument or your side has to be determined by the Supreme Court, you've already lost. Or you should consider it already lost. Because those nine judges are not oracles of truth. They get it wrong a lot. But if that doesn't tell you how important this presidential election is, I don't know what will. Because this case can very easily result in, yeah, the only way you can carry a weapon outside of your home is if you've already been a victim. Bottom line, without your Second Amendment right, you don't have any First Amendment rights. one 3393 Again, did you hear anything about that case? Peruta versus County of San Diego, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Did you hear anything about that nationally? I don't know. Because it's kind of a local issue. It's not, but it just was pitched that way because it's Peruta versus San Diego County or a California issue. I'm not sure if anyone heard about it across the country. So Slater Radio on Twitter, if you, if you did or did not. I'm just curious. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater thanks for being here so i want to play this clip for you here um i I did this the other day and people got mad at me and I, i don't i don't mean it to attack anyone i just think it's really important that we get this straight so back in 2009 when barack obama first became president and by the way 2009 sounds like last year or like a year two years ago maybe that was seven years ago, right? Um, he was in France and he was asked specifically, the president was, President Obama, specifically asked what he thinks about American exceptionalism and if he believes in it like his predecessors, W. And this is what his very first sentence out, out of his mouth to that question was, I believe in American exceptionalism just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. And when he said that, I distinctly remember the next day, I ripped him to shreds for it, and it comes up in conversation about once every two months. Now, he went on to say, uh, I'm enormously proud of my country and its role in history in the world. 
He said, uh, I don't think America should be embarrassed to see evidence of the sacrifices of our troops, the enormous amount of resources that were put into Europe post-war uh, and leadership and crafting an alliance that ultimately led to the unification of Europe. And we should take great pride in that. And he went on to say that we had the largest economy in the world and unmatched military capability and all these good things. So his answer starts off terrible and sort of wanders into incomplete. But the point is I've been critical of him saying that since 2009 because I think someone who's president of the United States should know how to properly answer that question. And it wasn't, in the end, it wasn't horrible, but it's not complete. So someone the other day sent me this video of Trump. This is April 2015 at a Texas Tea Party event called Celebrating the American Dream. He was asked pretty much the exact same question. Listen to his answer here. Define American exceptionalism. Does American exceptionalism still exist? And uh, what do we do to grow American exceptionalism? Okay, well, I don't like the term. I'll be honest with you. And I'll, people will say, oh, he's not patriotic. Look, if I'm a Russian or if I'm a German or if I'm a person we do business with, why, you know, I don't think it's a very nice term. We're exceptional. You're not. First of all, Germany's eating our lunch. So they say, why are you exceptional? We're doing a lot better than you. I never liked the term. And perhaps that's because I don't have a very big ego and I don't need terms like that. But honestly, <laughs> when you're doing business, I mean, I watch Obama every once in a while say American exceptionalism. Is, oh. I don't like the term because we're dealing, first of all, I want to take everything back from the world that we've given them. We've given them so much. On top of taking it back, I don't want to say we're exceptional. We're more exceptional. Essentially, you're saying we're more, we're more outstanding than you. By the way, you've been eating our lunch for the last 20 years, but we're more exceptional than you. I don't like the term. I never liked it. When I see these politicians get up with the American exceptionalism, then we're dying. We owe 18 trillion in debt. I'd like to make us exceptional, and I'd like to talk later instead of now. Does that make any That's sense? That's good. Oh, because oh. I think you're insulting the world. <laughs> and, and you know, right. Jim, if you're Please German, stop there. Or if you're from Japan. So, oh, no, I'm sorry. Is there more? You don't want to have people saying that. Right. I never like the expression. And I see a lot of good patriots get up and talk about America. You can think it, but I don't think we should say it. We may have a chance to say it in the not-too-distant future, but even then I wouldn't say it. Because when I take back the jobs and when I take back all that money and we get all our... Sa- I don't want to rub it in. Let's not rub it in. Let's not rub it in. But I never liked that term. Okay. Okay, sorry, sorry, I cut that off too soon. He, um, the part we, I missed, I apologize. He said, you know, if you're German, you're Chinese, you're Japanese, you don't want to hear us say that. <sighs> what's, what's different? What's different between what Barack Obama said and what Donald Trump said? What's different? Here's where they're wrong. First, let me define American exceptionalism first, and then we can talk about where they're, they missed the mark. American exceptionalism is the understanding that the American ideal, as outlined in our founding documents, mostly the Declaration of Independence, recognizes each individual's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because that right is given to each person by God at their birth. There's so much, period, that's, that's, that's American exceptionalism. There's so much unique about that to world and human history. Now, have we lived up to that gold standard? No, we have not. 
but the standard is established and we strive to reach it. So what's unique about it? The fact that each and every person has these rights, not just some. The fact that they're granted at birth, not at adulthood and not at somebody else's choice. The fact that you have complete control over your life in every single way. And the fact that these rights can't be taken away from you because they're not granted to you by a government or someone in the government. They're granted to you by God. These things are unique to human history. Now, other countries have copied us in in different ways, but no country is founded on these principles. And that's what's made America great today. Now, this is what, that's what American exceptionalism is. What American exceptionalism is, exceptionalism is not. We have a strong military. We have a big economy. We invent things. We win Olympic medals. These are things that make America cool or awesome or great or the best, but that's different than American exceptionalism. And that's what Trump and Obama fell into that trap. They fell into the trap of being like, oh yeah, you know, like we're great, but I don't want to rub it in. Yeah, we got a big economy and a strong military. So yeah, but we can do better. And that's how Trump thinks everything's winning or losing. So he thinks we're losing in a lot of ways. So, you know, but to him, American exceptionalism is about our debt and economy. No, that's not what it's about. It's about our founding ideals. And I would hope that the person who is president and who will be president can understand that concept and articulate it clearly to the rest of the world. It's extremely important. Slater Radio and Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Cassettes, how do you do? Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. The Rock. Got a quote here from The Rock. As in, can you smell what The Rock is cooking? And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you uh, remember many times we've talked about how running for political office is becoming more and more like becoming a WWE superstar. And it actually works out because Donald Trump is in the WWE Hall of Fame. So here is The Rock. Quote, I'll be honest. I haven't ruled politics out. I'm not being coy when I say that, but at the moment, I'm not sure. I can't deny that the thought of being governor, the thought of being a president is alluring. And beyond that, it would be an opportunity to make a real impact on people's lives on a global scale. But there's a lot of other things I want to do first. The Rock. The Rock. WWE world champion when I watched wrestling. And now movie star. I don't know his politics, but I'm not even kidding. I'm not kidding. I would not be surprised if we saw a Kanye West, Dwayne The Rock Johnson matchup in 2020. And you 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 think I'm kidding around. I don't know much about The Rock. And, and I, I, but I can, here's why Mm, they're both showmen. That's where our political, especially the presidential race, that's where it's going. It's about being a showman and really no one's better at it than the rock, Donald Trump and, uh, 
Kanye West. Remember a couple weeks ago, we read a blog post written last year by um, Mark Cuban. So about a year ago, I said that Mark Cuban was going to be Donald Trump's VP. And everyone laughed. And then he came out and said, I'd be Hillary's VP and people criticize me. But now he's out there yesterday, the other day saying he'd be Donald Trump's VP and all this stuff. But like a year ago, because these guys are showmen. Now he wrote a blog post about a year ago where he said he learned how to be a showman by watching Paris Hilton and Dennis Rodman. He said they were the best at controlling and manipulating the media and getting attention and becoming popular because of it. So that's when he learned those skill sets. And they're the same ones that Kanye West and The Rock and Donald Trump have. And and when Kanye West, what was it, like the MTV Awards or something, said he's going to run for president in 2020, everyone laughed or thought it was crazy. I guarantee you he's going to run for 20, president in 2020. No, I guarantee you no one's given me a good reason why he won't. <laughs> I guarantee you he will. Because... And here, here's where, especially you, because you are politically inclined, you follow this stuff, you get it, you understand the importance of it. This isn't a game to you. So the reason you don't believe what I'm saying, if I can be honest, is because you, you have a conflict between what you know should be and what is. Now, I don't want you to ever give up fighting for what should be. But that doesn't mean we need to be blind to what is. And here's where the main confusion comes from. There are skill sets that are necessary to be a good president. And there are skill sets necessary to win the presidency. Maybe way back in the day, those two things used to be the same. Those used to be the same skill sets. But as time has gone on, the task of running for president is so different than the skills necessary to be the president. They're so different that now they have nothing in common at all. There's there's no correlation between the two. And it's crazy that this is how we nominate someone for an important job. Take this for an example. Uh, the process, uh, I got a buddy who flies for uh, uh, U.S. Air. Let, let's, let's say uh, U.S. Air, okay? The, the process of becoming a pilot for a major airline. It's a whole long thing. You need a certain number of hours of flying. You got to pass written tests. There's a lot of simulator tests that you have to go through. And, and my friend's been doing this for whatever, 30, 25 years. And every year or so, he has to go back and do these flight simulators. And they throw everything at you and... And all this stuff. And then when you get the job, you got to start with the smaller planes and then you work your way up to the transnational flights, right? That's the big one. And when it comes to hiring airline pilots, you would hope that the process of being hired and the job itself involves similar skill sets. You with me? But running for president has almost nothing to do with being president. It would be as if Delta Airlines picked their pilots based off of like who can do the most pull-ups or they had an arm wrestling tournament or a connect four tournament or, or who can do the best magic trick or something. And then whoever has the best magic trick is the pilot. Like, like you, if it's honestly, if you got on an airplane and uh, you met the pilot, you know, they stand there sometimes. Oh, Hey pilot. How are you? Uh, what's your experience flying a plane? Oh, I've not, I've never flown a plane in my life. Well, how'd you get this job? I am awesome at Connect Four. 
No, really, like, I can't be beat. And we had a big Connect Four tournament, and I won, so I'm going to be flying you to Mexico today. <laughs> it's like, what? It makes no sense at all. So the, the process of becoming president is so disconnected from the skills necessary to be a president. And I put, I, I suppose Obama was kind of an ex, like, I don't know, because I think it's been a process for a long time coming, but Obama maybe started it or took it to a new level, but Trump has taken it to a whole new level. Trump has amazing skill sets of marketing and branding and courting attention. He's the master at it. But these skill sets have nothing to do with governing. And you know what you can also, another example is how you look. So the correlation or the, the, the correlation between how handsome you are and how good of a president you'll be is like zero. It, it, maybe there's some minor, like, I don't, but honestly, if you look at CEOs, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if the CEOs are on average four inches taller than the average man, isn't that wild? Then like, why? Like, why would that be? You got to look the part. Do you know James Madison? James Madison, the guy who wrote the constitution. I think he's five, three and like a buck 10. <laughs> That's crazy. Five. James Madison would never win the race for president of the United States. He would never win. He wouldn't win County water board at five, three, one, 10. And he wrote the stinking constitution. If you read anything on Abraham Lincoln, they constantly mocked his looks, called him haggard, rail splitter, all these horrible things, an ape. They called him an ape, gangly armed ape and all this stuff, but he was still elected. But now you got to look the part. Now I didn't mean to get too off topic, but you get what I'm saying. Now you can say that, you know, Trump's run a big company so he, he can delegate and he understands numbers and bottom lines and setting goals and making budgets and deadlines and all that. And he does, and that's great. So there's some, Trump has some correlation as being an executive, a business owner to being president. I, I, get, I get that there's a correlation. But four years from now, maybe that won't even be a requirement. In four years from now, it's just going to be game on. It's just straight up popularity contest because the chasm between skills necessary to run and skills of being a good president are just going to be so massive. There won't even be a discussion of skills necessary to be the president. Won't even be a discussion. So that's why Kanye West will run for president and may even win. You heard it here first. 1-888-729-3776. 1-888-933-93. You can just see if we keep moving in this direction, why wouldn't Kanye West be president? Why not? <laughs> Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
Slater. I want to tell a story about D-Day. D-Day was Monday, 72 years ago, uh, June 6th, 1944. Obviously an infinite number of stories to share here, but honestly, I feel like D-Day kind of came and went. I didn't hear anyone really talk about it, which is sad. So um, I want to share one story I just heard for the first time the other day. It starts with a young GI. His name's Houston Riley. He disembarked his landing craft. You've seen Saving Private Ryan. You know how it looked. Ran off his landing craft, bullets flying, jumped into the water, sank right down to the bottom. Weighed down by all of his gear. Now he had a flotation device, so he activated it and bobbed up to the surface. But there he is, a sitting duck for the Nazis. He's a hundred yards away from shore. A hundred yards. If you, uh, you know, your local YMCA pool, it's usually 25 yards. So he's four pool lengths away from shore, just floating on the surface. It took him 30 minutes for Riley to swim to shore. And he's got bullets ricocheting all around. Imagine the terror of that 30 minutes. Imagine 30 seconds of bullets flying around you. Any second he thought he was going to die, but he kept swimming. Finally made it to the beach. Crawled up to the as, as far as he could, stood up, and as soon as he stood up, he got four bullets right to his shoulder. He fell to the ground, and then he woke up, and he saw two men run over to him and drag him to cover. One of the men, he remembered, had a camera around his neck. And that's who I really want to focus on in this story. That man's name was Robert Kappa. There were 18 American photographers given credentials to join our service members during World War II. Only 18. Four of them were given permission to land on the beaches of Normandy. Kappa was one of them. Kappa made it to shore. He had three cameras with him. No gun. And he alternated between taking pictures of the carnage and taking cover. He saw men shot, blown up, and set on fire all around him. He said, a new kind of fear was shaking my body from toe to hair and twisting my face. He took 106 photographs. He was on the beach for 90 minutes. And he saw a landing craft pretty close. So he ran to it, was pulled aboard. And he, with his 106 photographs, were headed back to London. The three other photographers, they were either killed or their film was ruined because they dropped it into the ocean. These 106 photographs were the only images of the initial moments of the D-Day invasion from the perspective of the beach. He gets back to London. He's, he works for, uh, Robert Kappa worked for Life Magazine, right? the, the magazine at the time. So he got back to the headquarters and the editor said, we got to send these to print right now. We got to get these as quickly as possible. Developed so we can put them in the magazine and get them off. So he gave them to the darkroom technician who hurried up as quickly as he could to develop the pictures. And they were all anxious to see him too. But because he moved so quickly, they dried the film too quickly. 
all the pictures were destroyed. Except for 11 of them. Only 11 pictures remained. Oh, that's awful. These 11 pictures were published in the June 19th, 1944 issue of Life magazine. This was the public's first view of D-Day. The pictures were black and white, obviously blurry. One picture, you've seen it before, it's the backs of men trudging through the water to make it to shore. All the other pictures are, are, are pictures of the obstacles and the mines placed on the beach to prevent the landing crafts from getting close. There's one other picture, though. His most famous picture. When Kappa made it to the beach, he turned his back on the Nazis and took a picture of a lone soldier, Houston Riley, struggling to make it to the beach. And it's the most powerful of all of his photos because it, it humanizes the invasion with the guys who are running on shore. It's just their backs. You see their uniform, their gear, a little bit of their guns. But this picture, you see this man's face. You see his fear. You see his determination, his exhaustion. You see the futility of it all. You see the importance of the invasion and it's personified in this one man. Now what the picture doesn't show you is that the photographer saved his life by pulling him to cover after that shot. On the futility of it all, I had the honor many years ago of talking to an army ranger who was a part of the Point to Hawk invasion. Long story short, but he and his men needed to scale a hundred foot cliff to take the Nazis out. Everything went wrong. And I asked that ranger if he's ever been back to Point Duhok. And he said, yes, I went back a couple years ago for the first time. And he said, I put my toes over the edge of the cliff and I looked down that hundred feet and I said, how did we do that? They did. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three... Two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. How are you? America is the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. One more hour. It's the fastest two hours ever. So, Jacobs Engineering Company is moving from Pasadena, California, to Dallas, Texas. I want to tell you the story of Jacob's engineering coming up in a second here. It's a fascinating story, but I got to start here. We'll build up to it. There was an editorial in the USA today a couple of days ago. I got, I'm sorry, I got to read it. <laughs> it's not good to read, but there's so many good parts here. As an immigrant from Latin America, I have found the current presidential election to be both depressing and terrifying, but not for the obvious reason. The negativity and rhetoric concerns me, of course, yet it pales in comparison to the growing acceptance of socialism, which I thought I left behind in my formerly rich homeland, Venezuela. So this is a gentleman, Eric Bremen is his name, 
born and raised in Venezuela. I came to America around college age. And he sees Bernie and the support that he's received way more than anyone's expected, which is scary. And, and I, I remember, you know, and I did the same thing. I'm like rooting for Bernie, right? Uh, I know friends who California is kind of a weird election. It's interesting. Maybe we can explain it later, but you can sort of almost somehow vote for the Democratic. It's weird. But anyway, a, a couple of friends of mine voted for Bernie just in the name of chaos and ugliness, right? Just to support Bernie in California, just to screw up Hillary. So I get it. Right? I'm kind of rooting for Bernie because that messes up Hillary and stuff like that. But I'd see so many people at the Bernie rallies knowing that Bernie wasn't going to win in the end. But I'd still see so many people there thinking, what the heck? What are you doing? This is no good that this many people like his message very bad. Now, this man says, I understand where socialism's young devotees are coming from. I was a teenager when Hugo Chavez came to power in Venezuela's 1998 presidential election. Then, my countrymen were disenchanted with our trajectory and demanded a radical change, not unlike millions of Americans today. Yet as a young idealistic student myself, I was captivated by socialism's promise of a more equal, fair, and just society. Reality has opened my eyes to just how wrong I was. Venezuela's 17-year experience with socialism has taught me a number of lessons about the inherent problems, its inherent problems, and inevitable failure. This editorial and the message from this man needs to be required reading for young people. People with this perspective around the world who have lived it need to talk to young people today. I wish I saw this. Bernie came to San Diego a couple times. He spent a lot of time here the last week before the primary. I, w- I wish I saw this editorial and I could print, I would print it out and I'd hand it to everyone at a Bernie rally. He says one of the promises of socialism is that it will root out corruption. But he lived it. And that was the same thing Chavez said 17 years ago. He said, vote for me, I'll root out the corruption. And people did. They voted for him. But the corruption got worse. Because in a socialist system, it's more important. The only way you'll be successful is if you game the system. The only way you'll be successful is if you cozy up to politicians. There's way more corruption in a socialist system. Same promise of distribution of wealth as well. Short term, yeah, fine. Long term, no one wants to do anything anymore. (laughs) No one will work anymore. You can see what that's done in in, uh, Venezuela. Let Let me show you a little fact here. This is crazy. I heard this the other day. I've, I've, I've followed this fact for a long time, actually, but I, I just heard this little angle on it. So what's the best way to describe this? Uh, I'll do it this way. What country has a GDP equal to the state of Texas? Let me, let me pull up the list here. Just so I can give you a little more perspective. All right. What country has a GDP the size of Texas? So I was talking to some people the other day and they said, um, I think someone said like Guatemala or something like that. Let's see, Guatemala, there's 172 countries, something like that. Guatemala is um, 70th, 70th biggest GDP in the world. When it comes to countries, and I, no, no, it's not, it's not right. Texas is a, a bigger GDP than tech, than Guatemala. 
So someone said uh, New Zealand. Oh, New Zealand's bigger. 55th biggest country in the world, GDP. 55th biggest economy, but not Texas is bigger than that. So someone said Russia. And I said, oh, come on, Russia. Russia. You think Russia has the same size economy as ta- Ru- the whole country of Russia? Putin and everything? Russia? Nope. Texas is a bigger economy, a bigger GDP than Russia. The answer is uh, Russia's number uh, 12 GDP. The answer is Brazil. Number nine, Texas has an economy the same size as Brazil. Now, now we've been following this fact a lot in the sense of every once in a while, there'll, there'll be maps put out, but um, instead of the States, it'll say what country uh, has an equal GDP to it. Right? So, not a new fact, but listen to this. Brazil has 91 million people. Texas has 12 million. And they have the same size GDP. So Texas, 12 million people in Texas produce the same economic output as 91 million people in Brazil. How is that possible? How is that possible? Are, are the people in Texas genetically superior to people in Brazil? Are the people of Texas like have superhuman strength? Do, do they have bigger brains? Like what the heck? Are they genetically wired to be harder workers? The people in, in Texas? No, we're all humans. We're all human. The people in Brazil are just as capable of being as efficient and productive as people in Texas, but they're not because they don't have as much economic freedom as we do. That's it. That's the only difference. Natural resources. I'd say Brazil's huge. Brazil's got a ton of natural resources. Probably as much as Texas. So it's not, it's not that. People in Texas are more efficient and prosperous because they're free and there's an incentive to do more. Socialism destroys that incentive. So people do less. And that's why I don't even think socialism sounds good in theory. I hear people say that a lot. Conservatives will say that. They'll say, sure, socialism sounds good, but it never works. I don't even think it sounds good. I don't, I don't think people taking my stuff sounds good. I don't think receiving other people's stuff sounds good. And I don't think living in a country where everyone tries to do as little as possible sounds good. I'm not even going to cede that to the left. I don't think it sounds good. I think it, it sounds bad, and I know it is. And so does this gentleman from Venezuela. He said, I found my answer in America. I came here to pursue an education. From this vantage point, I quickly realized that a system of free enterprise, full of competition, innovation, is in, stood in stark contrast to the growing poverty, stagnation, and despair in my homeland. However, the steady growth of America's welfare state and government interventionism is different from that in Venezuela only in degree, but not in kind. Meaning the only difference is how much of it they have in Venezuela, but it's the exact same thing in principle. And he says that shows that this country, America, is far from immune and it frightens me to think what will happen as socialism becomes more popular here. Where else is there to go? We read an article from the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. They were at a hospital in Venezuela. And first of all, Venezuela only has electricity for two days a week. Right? You don't no more electricity the rest of the week. Um, the hospital, they turn the electricity off, even there. So all night long, when the electricity goes off, so there's only like, I think, I forget exactly how it works. It's, it's, I think it's, they don't have enough electricity to power factories and, and major buildings. 
So you don't go to work. You only go to work twice a week. Five-day weekend. Hooray! But the hospitals, I think, get um, electricity during the day, but not at night. So all night, doctors, this is what the New York Times article is about. All night, doctors will stay up and uh, by hand pump a breathing tube for babies because the incubators don't have electricity to be turned on. So they have to keep the babies alive, alive all night long. And every night a baby dies. One of the doctors said, dead babies is our bread and butter. Holy cow. They're, they do surgery on tables. There's no water in these hospitals. So they do surgery on tables with blood on them from the last patient. And the doctors don't wash their hands because there's no soap. Okay, you get an idea here? It's disgusting. There's people lying on the ground in the hospital hallways, bleeding all over the place because they don't have enough beds for everyone. They don't have anything. It's disgusting. That's socialism. Oh, but they promised free health care. It is free. That's where it's, And listen, it's one thing for me to scare you that this is where we're going. It's another thing from a guy from Venezuela to say, holy cow, everyone, I've seen this before. I've fallen for this before. So I actually talked to this guy on my local show the other day, yesterday. And we had a bunch of people call in from Venezuela and from Chile. So they've seen this. And they said, Slider, Venezuela used to be one of the richest countries. There were jobs everywhere. There was productivity. People were thriving. This one guy called in. He, he lived in Venezuela and Chile and Argentina and some other countries around there. And he said, when I went to Venezuela, he said, I thought I was in paradise. It was amazing. This was like in the early 90s, before socialism creeped in, before um, Hugo Chavez. He said it was amazing. He said, you open up the newspaper and there were job opportunities, uh, pages of job opportunities. Only socialism can take a country from that to what it is today. Only socialism can do that. That's why the old joke is, what did socialists use before candles electricity they go backwards they go from electricity to candles this is where we're going and i love the people who say oh oh venezuela that's not real socialism or something like that, right? People on the left, they distance themselves from Venezuela once it's now a completely a failed state. They're like, oh, no, that, that, that's, not what we're, that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're going to do something totally different than that. I'll tell you what, they didn't distance themselves any time before, like last year. They didn't. A couple of years ago, I distinctly remember. And we documented this when we talked about the New York Times article. People all over the left saying, oh, Venezuela's amazing. Look, look, at, look at their literacy rates. Look at their economic growth. Look at all these. Oh, the, the uh, income inequality is so small in Venezuela. Venezuela's amazing. And then the moment it fails, oh, it, it's, that, that's not real socialism. Our version is going to be different and better. This is going to work. No system has lifted more people out of poverty in the world than capitalism. And it's picked us, us up in America. To a point where we can complain about the most mundane things about our lives as if they're tragic struggles. And we expect miracles of human existence. We expect them as if they're God-given rights. And if we continue to do that, and we continue to fall for the promises and the allure like this gentleman did and so many people did in Venezuela, why would it be any different? Why would it be? Take a break. I'll tell you about Jacob's Engineering. It's got a lesson there for us as well. It all ties in. We'll do it next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. (laughs) 
You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. So we talked to this guy from Venezuela, wrote this editorial in the USA Today. He said his family, some of his family is still back in Venezuela. They will wait in line all day for food at a local market or something. And they get to the market and they don't even know what's there to buy. And, And they can barely buy anything. They have no money. There's no food. So they'll get there. They'll get to the store, the market, and maybe there's a, a can of beans, but maybe not. Like maybe there's just like toilet paper and that's it. They, they, so they, but they literally wait in line for something. It'd be one thing, one thing if you're waiting in line for, well, I'm going to wait in line because I'm going to get my uh, ration of, um, of um, oatmeal for the week. But no, they're just waiting in line. Like whatever's there. And sometimes there's no food. People are starving. Our, uh, New York times or Washington post. Here it is. As hunger mounts, Venezuelans turn to trash for food. It's amazing. And, and, and people still, still think it's just great. Uh, let's go to John in Pennsylvania. What's going on, John? Hi. Uh, I think the stronger case to be made against what Bernie's proposing is to actually pick something like Denmark or the Netherlands, which is more similar to what he's proposing, and then... Uh, defeat his arguments from uh, the circumstances of those countries. Why is that? Venezuela does not have a diversified economy. They remain almost entirely on oil revenues to fend their socialist welfare programs. So it's it's not very robust, whereas Denmark and the Netherlands, um, they have more of a market-style economy and a large welfare state, which one could argue is also unsustainable, but for um, other reasons. So yeah, it's kind okay, of so like, it, it, you know, it's like apples and oranges in, in, in some ways to try to defeat what he's saying by looking to Venezuela. Other than, yes, you're right. Other than still though, promises of, of paradise and fantasy and everything will be amazing and all the rest. That's, that's the issue. Um, but so do you like how Denmark is operating? And do you think we should be more like Denmark? No, I don't. But I just think that um, that that's the stronger, mm. more robust yes. argument to make against him. It, I think it, that's right. I, I think there is some cases where, um, you know, you do give up a lot of your freedom for that. But in small populations of, you know, 50 million, the size of, of a state, you can have that be somewhat stable, but you give up a lot of freedom to do that. And I think that, you know, that's kind of the argument to make as well as to say that um, uh, you have the high taxes, you have highly regulated economies, um, and we're a nation of 350 million people, not 20 to 50 million. Or actually, yeah. I think they might be 5 to 10 million. But you yeah. see what I'm saying? The order of no, no, totally with different. You. We're, we're more no. culturally diverse. They're more homogenous. So those are the differences. No, I think you're, you're totally right. John, I appreciate that call. Thank you, brother. Um I think you're right. Um, this is not my sole argument against socialism. 
Uh, we've talked about Denmark and the Scandinavian countries a lot. Uh, I think the last time we talked about him is when we, we debunked the whole this claim that the people in the Scandinavian countries, particularly Denmark, are super happy. Right? You've heard that like, oh, they're the happiest people in the world. And then they make the jump like, oh, they're so happy because they have this socialist is socialist system. Uh, so we need it too because we're not happy and we need to be happy like them. So we've debunked Scandinavian and all that stuff for a long time. Um, there's multiple arguments to be made from multiple angles. Um, but I think when someone from Venezuela, for instance, any socialist country, heck, we can learn if someone came from North Korea. Yeah, North Korea is very different than what Bernie's. But it's not even Bernie, right? Let's, let's move away from Bernie. It's just what these, these, the people following him will believe and what they'll fall for big picture. Bernie may, Bernie, maybe his policies are more like Denmark, but the whole promise of utopia from government, a government planned, a government promised utopia, that comes in many colors and many places around the world and, is, and it could absolutely come here in America as well. That, that's more the lesson I get from Venezuela. Yes, our economy, their economy, Scandinavian economy, very different. But again, the government-led um, uh, prosperity is what's, what's uh, damaging. Now, um, one other thing about the Scandinavian countries, they used to be the poorest countries in Europe. Scandinavian countries used to be the poorest in Europe. And then they embraced free market capitalism, and they became the wealthiest in Europe. And it's only been the last decades, a couple decades, maybe max, where they started to embrace uh, uh, their more democratic socialism, if you will. And they're already starting to see the effects of that and the consequences of that. But we don't know that history. People don't know that history. They think the Scandinavian countries are prosperous because of their welfare states. No, they're prosperous because of capitalism, which makes their welfare states, they've been sustainable for now, but that won't last, certainly. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Networks. So we'll tell you about uh, Jacobs Engineering next. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on The Blaze Radio Network. is Mike Slater. So started this whole conversation about Venezuela socialism is uh, Jacobs Engineering. They've decided to move their headquarters from Pasadena, California to Dallas, Texas. And it's sad. It's, it's a big company. Um, they were founded in Pasadena over 50 years ago. Now they've already moved, I think, 300 employees to Dallas, but they're ready to move the whole shebang by the end of the year. This is a $6 billion company. $12 billion in annual revenue. And they employ, employ 64,000 people around the world. So Jacobs Engineering, they build, maybe some people working for Jacobs Engineering listening right now, you can help me out uh, and help everyone out understanding what you do. Jacobs Engineering builds big, massive things. Huge, impossible things like mining equipment, uh, oil refineries, um, like airports, like, like just huge, like water reclamation equipment, huge, impossible things. They set up a mining operation in Peru, copper mining, 
16,000 feet of altitude. And only a few years ago, people would say that's impossible to even reach this area, let alone mine it for copper. So they are given impossible projects. And their job is to find an engineer a way to make it happen. I think recently they built something that like a, like a satellite or something that goes into space and measures dark matter in like what? Like, could, could you imagine if someone came to you and said, Hey Charlie, uh, what I need you to do is you got to come up with something that measures dark matter in space. Uh, I need that in a couple months. If you can just go ahead and knock that out for us. Uh, like what? So these people do incredible things. But they're moving out of California. Let me give you a quick background here. Recent background to California. So we voted on Tuesday, our primaries here. Wasn't a huge deal. I guess it was a little bit for the Hillary Bernie thing. Bernie did horribly here, by the way. And we can talk about that maybe if we got a minute at the end of the show. Um, But there were local races. So in California, we have what we call a top two system. So in the primaries, whoever gets first or second place goes on to the general election. And you're saying, what's different about that? Even if the first and second place person are both Democrats, they go on to the general. There's no Republican. So the U.S. Senate race, Barbara Boxer is retiring. The U.S. Senate race is two Democrats. A Republic, the Republican got third. So, two, so, so I'm not even going to have the chance to vote for a Republican for U.S. Senate in November. And the two Democrats are the worst they, they are the worst Democrats in the state. I'm not even kidding. They are the two worst. Like, they're worse than Pelosi. Pelosi's in California. Like, they're the two worst Democrats. Kamala Harris is our attorney general. Don't even get me started. Well, I'm about to go start, get started, aren't I? Um, I can't do it. It's, it's too much. She is horrible. I'll save it for the next segment. She got first place. Second place is Loretta Sanchez. Loretta Sanchez is a nut. She, she's literally crazy. Like, she she's known as the crazy aunt of the Democratic Party in California. Like she is loco. So these are the top two Democrats. So bad news. And I remember someone called into my local show and said, Slater, what, what 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 is going on here? It's hopeless here in California. No, it's not hopeless in California. It's not. But we're certainly going down the wrong road. And then I heard about Jacobs Engineering moving out of California to Texas. And I said, what's the story with Jacobs Engineering? Let me share a little bit about it. So it starts in the 19, early 1900s. Two immigrants came from Lebanon, settled in Brooklyn, New York. They met, got married. The dad was a notions peddler. I had no idea what that was when I, when I found out a notions peddler. So a notions peddler is someone who goes door to door selling things like um, buttons and needles and thread and washers and, and wicks for kerosene lamps, stuff like that. And they were struggling. They were having a hard time making ends meet. And then the dad met a guy who owned a Geneva cutlery company and they were going to sell straight razors and they needed someone to go around selling straight razors. So these are the razors that they use in old timey barbershops today, right? Basically a knife to shave. He made a killing. It was going great. This is around World War I. Make, making so much money selling straight razors. Then came Jacob Schick. Ah, oh, Jacob Schick. Now, this guy, he did not invent 
this product, but he brought to market the safety razor. This is a razor like you use today, right? Like Gillette Schick, right? That's this guy, Jacob Schick. So he's selling these safety razors that are way better. Sales of straight razors went to nothing. So his family goes bankrupt. The dad dies. They're completely broke. They had five kids. Now the youngest wanted to go work to support the family, but his mom said, no, you have to go and get an education. So he did. He was smart. Got a bunch of degrees. And when he graduated after a bunch of programs, he said, all right, I'm going to go and I'm going to start my own company. Now, again, this is part of Lebanese culture. They're Lebanese immigrants. He's first generation American, but his parents are Lebanese. And, and part of their culture is to be a uh, self-reliant. So he said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving New York. I'm going to go set up a one man shop. Now he could set it up anywhere in the whole world, but he decided to do it in California. Specifically Pasadena. He set up shop by himself. A year later, he hired four people. The next year, he hired 20 people and he grew and he grew and he grew. That's the story of Jacob's engineering. He passed away in 2004 at the age of 88. And gave away a ton of his money, including, I'm here in San Diego, they gave away, he started a, he gave a ton of money and, and what is now the Jacobs Center for Neighborhood Innovation. It's in one of the poorer parts of town and they do a bunch of revitalization uh, projects and, and technical training for people so that they can go on and get an education and be self-sufficient as well. But, but here, here's why it says, that story has California written all over it. The whole thing has California written all over it. See, I, California has always been a smaller version of America. It's, it's the American dream, the California dream. It's always been that. Right? It's always been about traveling west to make a name for yourself, to start fresh, to be free, to be innovative, to be on the cutting edge. So you go and you establish yourself and you grow and you hire and you create a business. And that's what Jacobs did. He created a business culture that he and he knew his dad would be proud of as well. And that company has flourished here in, in, in California for 60 years. And now they're saying, Why, we, we can't take it anymore. Get me out of here. Isn't that sad? You know, it's not easy for a company to, to pick up and move. There's a company out here in San Diego called ResMed. Um, big company is growing. It's doing really great. They were thinking about moving a year or two ago. And I remember I went to a presentation they put forward about why they decided not to. They will eventually, but why they decided not to. There were a ton of factors that went into it. And one of them was how expensive it is to tell everyone to pick up their families and move, right? You got to give people a lot of money to do that and the moving expenses and those. And that adds up a lot. And you're going to lose a lot of people when you do move. Cause they got it like some of them won't. And it's just, it's a hassle and it's hard and it's expensive to pick up and move. But it's that bad here. And the company's entire history is here. I just, I think it's so sad about what California used to be and what it's always been. And what it's becoming. 
And where California always used to be kind of like a little America, when it comes to the American dream, the California dream, now it's, it's still like a little America. California's always been a crystal ball. And this is what's happening here, and it's what could happen across the country as well. Um, and, and you know what? You know what Jerry Brown, our governor, says when companies move out of California? Jamba Juice just announced they're leaving California a couple weeks ago. They're going to Texas as well. Companies all the time. About 3.4 companies move out of California every week. It's average. 3.4 a week. A week. And you know what Jerry Brown, our governor, says when these companies leave? Good. I mean, he says good. Who needs them? That's his ideology. That's his plan. He wants, I know this sounds crazy. He wants, Jerry Brown, our governor, wants people to leave. When he was governor the first time, he talked about a, um, a philosophy he had. Small is beautiful. Small is beautiful. He got it from one of his good friends who was a, a rabid environmentalist who uh, was big on the whole um, uh, population bomb theory from Paul Ehrlich big in the hole. There's too many people and we're going to destroy the planet and all that. He's, he said small is beautiful. And Jerry Brown took that over, made it his own because they were good friends. And I know it sounds crazy, but, and it's hard to wrap your head around it, but Jerry Brown wants people gone. He wants fewer people. He wants less water use, less traffic, less impact on nature. He doesn't mourn these businesses leaving for a second. He doesn't. That's why whenever you hear about there being a drought in California, it's a total farce. It's a total farce. It's completely, completely, excuse me, completely government created. Entirely. Well, the drought is mother nature, but the water shortage is government created because Jerry Brown doesn't want there to be water for people in California because he wants people to leave. They don't want there to be farming in California because it's bad for the planet. It's bad for nature. We passed a water bond in California last election, 2014. Like a nine billion dollars, something crazy like that. Part of that money, or almost all the money, went to environmental causes, whatever that is. But a lot of the money went to remove dams, remove dams, which decreases our water reservoirs. Why? Because there's this whole movement in California, led by Jerry Brown, to restore rivers to their natural state before humans came in and ruined it. So Jerry Brown doesn't care when these businesses leave. He wants them to. This is part of the plans. It's what they're trying to do. You know, it's amazing. You know, people use the word business unfriendliness. I don't like that word. Because unf- California is not unfriendly to business. They're hostile to it. And they love it. They love being hostile to it. And it's working great. And I know that sounds so counterintuitive and you can't, it's hard to wrap your head around because you're like, well, wait, why? What Don't they, don't they want job, revenue? They don't even think that far. They want there to be fewer people in California. They're doing a great job. 1-888-900-3393. I'm just sorry to everyone listening in Texas that we're sending so many Californians to you. Good people, if you get the conservatives, good conservatives in Texas, but um, I hate that we're sending so many uh, liberals They're your way as well. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to Mike Slater. So we just mentioned actually Denmark a couple minutes ago, and I just mentioned Jerry Brown. Let's bring these two things together. Remember a while back, maybe a month ago, uh, we talked about the minimum wage and the real reason that people want to raise the minimum wage. They know that it hurts low-income people. The left knows it. Um, they know that it makes these people unemployed. And the real reason they, they want to do that is to make it easier to make the case for a guaranteed minimum income. I, I can make the argument again, but I, I got to run here. But this has been a movement brewing uh, for a long time by the left. It's been a bit underground. But Jerry Brown, our governor in California, the first time he was governor, said most people say that we should decrease welfare and get more jobs. I, however, believe we need fewer jobs and more welfare. And then he went on to say that by welfare, he means a guaranteed minimum income. And this is where everyone just gets money. Everyone gets a minimum income no matter what. Now, this is absurd on, on everyone. I mean, literally everyone gets money. It's absurd. It's horrible. But I remember I, I talked about it a month ago and I said, you know, Switzerland is going to vote on this soon. Well, they did last week. And it was voted down $2,500 a month for every person in Switzerland, $2,500 plus $640, excuse me, for each child a month, even if you're super rich. So why was this voted down? It was not voted down because the people of Switzerland said, whoa, (laughs) we don't really want to turn into a Marxist paradise here. We don't want to disincentivize work and other million reasons why this is a horrible idea. They voted it down because it would also give money to every foreigner legally residing in the country. So a person who's essentially part of the Democratic Party, basically, said, theoretically, if Switzerland were an island, the answer is yes. But with open borders, it's a total impossibility, especially for Switzerland with a high standard of living. If you would offer every individual a Swiss account of amount, uh, a Swiss amount of money, you would have billions of people who would try to move into Switzerland. So incentives matter. So listen, I got to run, but it's a horrible idea. Um, it's just that the Swiss people picked like there's a million other reasons why it's a horrible idea. If it weren't for the fact that they're right, everyone would move there. Then uh, there'd still be a million. They, they would have voted for it, right? <laughs> they would have voted for it if it wasn't for that one. But they've overlooked all the other reasons why it's a horrible idea. Well, Finland's up next. They're thinking about it. But it will come here to uh, America soon. Guaranteed minimum income. Minimum, minimum income. I think uh, Hillary will push for it uh, if she wins. Slider Crusaders, awesome. I appreciate you being here. Let's be together all week long on our Facebook page. We got a great video coming out tomorrow. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.